Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 118 of Yoga Land. Today, I'm so happy to welcome Jay Brown to the podcast. You probably know Jay Brown from his yoga podcast, which is called Jay Brown Yoga Talks. It's been around longer than mine. In fact, right before I launched my podcast, I thought, hmm, I better do some competitive analysis and go see if there's just tons of yoga podcasts out there. And I found his, and I distinctly remember really liking the sound of his voice, which is always kind of a nice thing with a podcast. Jay and I have become kind of internet friends. It's it's sort of a long story, but uh, we've never met in person, but we have a really nice bond over doing this, you know, fairly new form of media. And, and we're both supporters and fans of each other. A little bit more background about Jay. He's been practicing yoga by my count from the stories that he tells for more than 20 years. And he's the former owner of Abhyasa Yoga Center in Brooklyn. He closed that, I think within the last year or two, uh, and moved to Pennsylvania in a town near where I grew up. You'll hear this in the interview. And then he just recently opened a studio space in the town where I grew up, which is Allentown, Pennsylvania. So he is now teaching in Allentown and living with his family in Pennsylvania. He's still traveling on the road quite a bit and teaching on the weekends, but he's taken a lot of his teaching online. He does a live streaming class. He's got the podcast, and then he's got a monthly subscription-based membership where you can do his, his video classes there. One of the things I respect about Jay is that he's similar to my husband in that he's very opinionated about yoga and the evolution of yoga in the West. And, you know, he's coined his way of teaching. He, he says gentle is the new advanced. He has some frustration with how challenging it is to balance the business side of yoga, which obviously he lived through with, you know, owning a studio for as long as he did. So balancing the business side and sort of giving people what they think they want, balanced by offering really high quality yoga at a more measured pace, which potentially at first people don't think they want, but it, it is really in his view going to bring them into the real process of what yoga is. I'm kind of putting words in his mouth right now. I just want you to sort of understand his perspective. I think it's very thoughtful, inquiring perspective. I also want to say Jay's style when he does his podcast um, is a little different than mine. He does a longer talk, sort of personal talk at the beginning of uh, before the interview. And then when he does the interview, he picks up right from when you get on the phone with him. He doesn't do any like intro uh, kind of prepping you for the interview. He just records it right there. And so I decided to do the same thing with this interview because when he got on the phone, we were just kind of shooting the breeze for like 10 minutes and it, and it was it was a fun interesting conversation and then it segued right into the sort of quote unquote interview style that I do. So I I thought I would keep it there for now if you're the type of person that likes to just get right to the heart of the matter and Skip the chit chat. You can start it up about 14 minutes, I'm guessing, with this intro is where we're going to be. Okay, as I mentioned last week, Jason is about to embark on a tour of many, many different places this fall and moving into the new year of 2019. So if you want to study with him live in person, go to our schedule page, jasonyoga.com slash schedule. Okay, enjoy the interview with Jay. 
I can hear you oh, now. Sorry, I pressed me? the mute mute button by accident. <laughs> there you are. Oh my goodness, rookie move, rookie move. Not even. Hi, Andrea. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's been that kind of day. It's been that kind of week. Well, I, I had to laugh when I saw your little note when I signed on because my wife got called in for like a last minute gig today. And so I just... I have my two daughters and their cousin downstairs. I just started them on a Harry Potter movie. (laughs) And it was a big debate about it because, you know, I wanted them to watch something very benign like Moana or something that they weren't going to get scared by, but she wanted to watch Harry Potter. So if they're down there screaming, I can't go down there and help them. It's okay. okay. You can go down if you have to. No, it's okay. It's she's already seen it. She's on a big Harry Potter kick and she just wants to get everybody else on it. But oh, okay. Um, we'll see. We'll see if, if we hear the screaming, that's when Voldemort came on. <laughs> so wait, is it, how, how old is the older one? Is the older one who's already seen it? Yeah, she's eight. Okay. Okay. And she's been reading all of the books. She's been like that's obsessed awesome. with so we made her read the books first before she was allowed to watch the movies. Yeah, that's so smart. That's so yeah. smart. But she's into it, but she's so funny. Like she said to me the other day, she said, I'm basically 10, Dad. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> she's really independent. And so, I mean, I love her to death, but sometimes she's not always sensitive to her younger sister and younger cousin's needs. Oh, <laughs> and how old is your younger daughter? She is three-year-old. Oh, she's, she's still turn, little. Yeah, she's going to turn four in a couple months. Oh, my gosh. How's that going? How's your three-nager? Um, she's good, actually. You know, it's so interesting the second time around, so to speak. And I think also we had, like, a lot of time in between, not by design. Like, we were trying but had trouble. And, in fact, my wife... At one point, I had an ectopic pregnancy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's scary, right? It's very scary, actually. Yeah. And they saved her life with a surgery and had to remove one of her fallopian tubes in that Oh, process. wow. So she was a tube down. So she was a tube down, and she was like 40. Wow. Aw, she's so kind of a little really miracle baby. So she's kind of the miracle, miracle baby. Yeah. But she, it's so interesting because her personality is so different than her sister's. And she, you know, she's a little bit more sensitive, but in certain ways, because her sister is always there, she, she's like a little farther along than my first daughter was in certain ways. Like she's not scared by Harry Potter at all. Oh, like she, wow. You know, she always wants to impress her sister. Uh-huh. <laughs> we were just talking about it. We're like a little bit, because my first daughter, she just didn't, she didn't have anybody else in reference. It was all her. Yeah. And now the second, my daughter, my second daughter, everything's in relationship to her older sister. Yeah. And she never, she never gets to win, you know? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. Trying to make sure that she has opportunities to like, feel like she gets to be number one. Oh, that's very like nice and mindful of you. I feel like that. Yeah. I was the younger sister and we had five years between us too. And uh, mm. yeah, it's hard being the younger with that many years because you, you can't do anything close to what your sibling can do. You're, there's nothing, there's no way for you to sort of like catch up and feel like as capable, you know? So, so yeah, that's, that's smart. I have a friend who has four kids and the youngest is Sophia's age. He's a little boy and it is amazing to watch him. He is like, 
I call, I say he's a cool dude in, in a loose mood. Like having three older siblings, he just like nothing phases him. He feels like he's got it all under control. He's like, he, he's just, I feel like the, being the youngest of four might be like the best of all sibling situations. And Jason has, Jason has four nieces and nephews and the youngest, he's exactly the same. It's like he gets showered with attention but he has all of these different role models at different ages. I don't know. It's like, it's pretty adorable. I know. And I sometimes think that in a way, like the, the lighter kids, depending, at least with our daughters, they get better parenting because oh. in a certain sense, like we were so nervous yeah. the first time around. Yes. Like we did things so differently. So I remember at one point when my second daughter must have been like one and a half or something. And she was like sitting on the floor in the living room and she had been playing by herself happily. And she was starting to get a little bit upset and just kind of like cry a little bit, but like not really. Yeah. And both me and my wife walked by once or twice Uh while we were finishing up a few things before (laughs) we were going to pick her up. And I just thought, oh, that never happened with Ross. That never yeah. happened with my first daughter. We <laughs> never walked by that many times when oh she got to that state. We would have already picked her up and made sure everything was okay. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I often so. like <laughs> wish I had a do-over child because, because yeah, I mean, I was a wreck when she, oh yeah. And, and you do just, you get so much more skillful and it's such a crash course. It's just like, yeah, I just, boom. I didn't, I just didn't worry half as much with my second dad as I yeah. did with the first, you know? and which just puts you at ease and you make better choices, I think. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you can probably yeah. think more clearly. Yeah. But I would also say back to the initial question is, you know, when we got pregnant the second time, I kind of looked at my wife because it was right at that point where our first daughter was five. And it's when you start to get your life back a little bit because they yeah. go to school. Mm-hmm. And my wife started making art again because she had given up her studio practice. And and I said, you realize if we do this, then it's another four years back in the trenches, you know, like that first four years, you don't really have time goes away and you don't have so much of your own life. And we, I mean, we, of course, wanted to do it and, and, and both went in super happy and feeling blessed, but at the same time, only now are we starting to emerge. September, my second daughter starts like three days a week at a preschool. So we're only now returning back to that point in a way where we're, she's kind of getting a little bit of time back, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that, it's a huge, I mean, it's like you get so much from it, but it, parenting is a huge sacrifice, <laughs> especially in the early, early years, I think. And then probably perhaps again in the teen years when they just are, you know, individuating, like trying to break free of you and all of those things. Well, I would say we, we did wait. We were much later in our years, I would say, you know, 10 years older than my parents were mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When we started having children. So in a way we, we went into it making a choice, you know, which is not always the case. Yeah. 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 Can you hear the, um, probably cement truck outside of my door at my window right now? I cannot hear it. Okay. Um, you know, I've got, I've tried to give you a good sound background as best I could. Uh, well, thank you. The sound background <laughs> here sucks. No matter what I do, there's always something. 
<laughs> I know. What are you going to do? Okay. He just drove away. Good, good, good. There's a lot of construction in San Francisco all the time. I've had so many um, interviews with the cement truck in the background. So probably my listeners are used to it by now. What part of San Francisco are you in? We live in Bernal Heights, which is... I know. I lived oh. in Bernal Heights. Oh, you for did? three months. Oh, wow. Yeah. The only time I left New York was in like 1994, right after I graduated. And I stayed with friends of mine at a place in Bernal Heights for about three or four months before I came back. You know, a lot of people, their first place ever that they stayed in the 90s was Bernal Heights because it was so inexpensive Mm -hmm. and it was near the mission. So and it was sunny. So, yeah, we lived in the mission for a long, long time. And then we moved, you know, just a little hop, skip and a jump south to Bernal Heights probably about 10 years ago when it was still kind of just like a little bit of an unknown neighborhood. And it's now, then, I don't know, a couple years ago, I think it was actually when Sophia was born five or six years ago, there was some, I can't remember which website, some big real estate websites named it as one of the top three hottest neighborhoods in the United States. So now real estate is way up. And I mean, it's still a lovely, lovely little place to live where we feel super lucky that we got got in when we did. And there's lots of kids and families here, which is not super common for San Francisco. Although it's getting more common than it than it used to be. But there's a lot of young kids in this neighborhood. So it's it's been so good to us. It's been really sweet. But it's really loud. And it's, you know, and we still live in like 1,200 square feet. And mm-hmm. uh, if that, so you, I mean, you know what that's like. You were in Brooklyn. Yes, I do know what it's like to be in Brooklyn. And I'm, I'm flashing back to my time in Bernal Heights. I worked at Kate Ashbury t-shirts on the corner of Hate Ashbury. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I worked at Leather Tongue Video on 18th and Valencia. Oh, wow. It was this crazy video store. And I just remember uh, walking and I used to have to take a bus and I would wait like a really long time, 45 minutes for a bus to take me 15 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, I got to get out of here. And I went back to New York. I was like, all my friends were like, you got to get a motorcycle, you know? Yeah. <laughs> public like transportation here is- yeah. Yeah. To get around. But wow. And you're, you're there, but I, there wasn't any kids there when I was there. It was a little bit more sketchy, I think. Yeah. No, the mission now is like, it's really changed. I remember that video store. I lived on 18th and Dolores just a few blocks away. Um, like I probably did, I moved there probably 97. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but now I'm seeing, I've been seeing online. Well, I knew that you moved to Easton PA and then I saw online that you've got, you secured a space in Allentown PA, which is where I grew up. Oh, you're from Allentown? I am from Allentown. Yeah. How about that? It's amazing. So it's amazing for me to see that you found this space and it looks like, is it, is it like in a, a whole art space? Is it a building where people rent studios? Yes. Basically some guys from Brooklyn, <laughs> I think some guys, like the, I said, my rent check or my, yeah, my rent check to his uh, New York city address, oh, but wow. I think the guys are from Brooklyn. And basically what they did is they bought a whole big industrial building and then renovated the whole thing into artist studios for a dollar per square foot. Nice. Wow. And it's sort of like Ugh. a little touch of Bushwick when you walk in there. There's art on all the walls or like graffiti and like the spaces are really nice and they've got everything kind of streamlined on computers and like it's really for artists. That is like amazing, cool- Jay. Like how serendipitous is that that you left Brooklyn, 
not knowing that that space was going to be there. I mean, if I were more woo-woo, I'd be like, you manifested that. (laughs) Well, you know, what I would say is that I spent the last year teaching at the local centers, you know, Uh in Easton and in Bethlehem. And I really just, like, after having the center in Brooklyn for 10 years, just kind of went back to what I know, like what I was doing before I had the center, you know, like hat in hand, just let me, can you have any slots open on the schedule? And people were gracious. And a lot of times they started some new slots for me. Like they gave me like a 7 PM or a 7 30 PM. And normally their latest class was six or six 30. Uh-huh. So they, they started some classes, which I think like some of them were sort of too late <laughs> for this area. So they weren't big classes. I was teaching one or two people, you know, and I've just been sort of in the centers. And I really did sort of start to realize that things had changed quite a bit since I was last there, Mm -hmm, you know, just mm -hmm. in terms of who was coming and why they were coming. And I would be, I would be at school pickup, you know, talking to a fellow parent and they would find out I was a yoga teacher and they'd be surprised. Like I didn't fit the image of a yoga teacher that they had and they would have like low back pain. Uh-huh. I'd say, well, that's kind of my thing. My thing is way more about pain reduction and easing stress. It's not so much about pushing your body hard. And it became really clear to me that a lot of the people who I think are interested in what I do aren't going to the yoga centers. Mm. They're actually like a little bit intimidated to go to the yoga centers because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they have an idea about what they're going to do when they get there. So are there kind of like vinyasa yoga centers in your area these days, yeah. as, as you know, I was, have not been there for a very, my family moved away. So I haven't been back in like 20 years. I mean, there's some local centers in Easton and in Bethlehem. I still teach at one in Bethlehem and they're great. They, you know, they're really indie, indie owned, you know, nice. they're yeah. great. They're not, there's no chain yoga centers here yet, you know, in a way it doesn't have any of the gentrification. It's more like when you first moved to the mission district or mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. You know, like it it still has those elements where you could get a space and do things if you wanted to. And it's much more affordable to live. Do you teach at the yoga loft in Bethlehem? Jason goes to the yoga I loft. Do. Oh, I nice. do. That's yeah. the place that I still teach at. Uh, I, and I'm going to be doing a component in one of their teacher training. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Well, what I, what I would say is that ultimately I kind of felt like it made sense for me to have a space but I didn't want to open a yoga center mm-hmm. like I did before. I didn't want to have 15 teachers and 42 classes a week mm-hmm. and class packages and the whole thing. And I didn't mm-hmm. want to do that again. I already spent 10 years doing that. And so my, my producer, he has been really, he was really on me and very instrumental in making it happen. And he sort of suggested, well, why don't you just get like a, like a loft space? You could, you know, record podcasts out of there. You could also teach some classes out of there. And so when we started looking around at what was available, we, we discovered this building in Allentown and it just had like the most reasonable price. And when I went there, it had like the best vibe. There's like a cafe downstairs where they had like vegetarian stuff. Oh my gosh. So wait, can you just tell me the actual cross streets? Just, I'm, I really, I want yeah, a picture. It's, it's like 4th Street and Tillman. Oh, Is so that it's right? down, downtown. Yeah. Just on the outskirts. Downtown used to just be desolate when I was growing up, you just never, you went to the Hesses downtown, which is like Macy's kind of, there was that you went down to kind of like shop for school or something, but you, there was really no other reason to go down there. If you didn't live, obviously if you didn't live there. 
I mean, I would say it, it's not like some thriving hip neighborhood or anything right. yet. Yeah. It's sort of pre whether that would happen there, you know, and sure. that's why it's more, you know, uh, reasonable. Right. But what I would say is that I just kind of had to admit to myself that at a certain point, like I have this like live stream that I do. Yes. Where people subscribe. And so, you know, I, whether somebody comes to class or not, I make more off of my live stream than I do off my actual classes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So at a certain point, it wasn't like I needed to go to the centers. Like, in fact, I was making very little at the centers. I made less at the centers this last year than I did 10 years ago before I opened my place. The way teachers get paid is, is different and less. And I like I had, for instance, I had a class maybe two weeks ago at my new studio space and five people showed up, three of them, one of them was someone I knew and they brought friends. And then two of them just showed up because they saw like a flyer I posted outside. Mm -hmm. And I had a, all I have is I have a cigar box with fives and ones <laughs> and a piece of paper that says name and email and a sign that says, choose your rate, I love 10, it. 10, 15 or 20. <laughs> That's all I have there. I love it. And so with the seven people who came or yeah, this, no, the five people came to class, I made $80. Mm -hmm. And if I had had five people come to my, any of my classes at the center, I would have made 30 or maybe even less. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it was just sort of like, well, there you go. It's almost for me, it is like a bit of a return back in the evolution of things. Like before we had studio front yoga centers that had spa type environments. Mm -hmm. We had people with artist lofts where the bathroom is down the hall and it's like a little bit scuzzy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> my first, yeah, it brings me back to my first Ashtanga class ever, which was on 18th and Shotwell which is at that time was like a very desolate part of San Francisco. I had to walk up these creaky stairs into this random building. And it was this teeny tiny little room with a rattling, blasting hot radiator. It fit seven people in the room max. And it totally blew my mind. Yeah, it's not that bad. Like it's a little more inviting <laughs> when you come in like, and there's artists and art and stuff. So it's kind of got some cool vibe to yeah, it, but yeah. it is a little bit more like that. And it isn't like you would notice it from the street necessarily. And you're going to have to know about it, mm -hmm. which is an interesting thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, just as you're talking, like, I have things that I wanted to talk about, but now I'm, I'm going to get off track of my, my plan, which is actually a good thing for me, I think. Because you just brought up a few things that I find so interesting. So you owned your yoga studio in Brooklyn for 10, for a decade mm -hmm. and you, you've sort of quote unquote gotten out. So, and, and I, you know, you're the first person I think that I've heard use the term yoga industrial complex. I don't know if you, did you coin that? Mm, I didn't coin it. Okay. I got it. I heard someone else say it. I can't remember yeah. where, but I, I didn't invent it. Yeah, but it's definitely, you know, when I started the podcast, well, I left Yoga Journal and then I, I took a job and then I went back to Yoga Journal and then I was part-time. And so I kind of slowly meandered out of like the yoga scene. Then I had my daughter and that was just for me a long period of like home practice, if really any practice when she was really little. So when I started the podcast, I feel like this whole concept of the yoga industrial complex like blossomed and I was like, a little bit behind, you know? And so I, I've always 
found it interesting that it's something that you talk about a lot. And I'm just wondering, and you know, Jason and I have often said to people, people have said to us, like, why don't you guys own a yoga studio? Why don't you have a home base for Jason? And we always say, you know, we just don't, it's just not something we've ever wanted to do. Like we like being independent and not having that, that rent over our heads and all the the staff and all of those things. So I was getting to my question. I'm getting to my question. I swear. Just, I'm just really curious as to what are the, the learnings for you having owned a studio for that long? And, you know, do you really feel like for most people, most yoga teachers these days, it's, it's sort of a better situation to be independent or like if you, if someone wants to start a yoga studio, what do you think needs to be behind that in terms of their actual desire? Wow. Well, there's a lot in that. <laughs> I know. I um, know. <laughs> what, that's what I would say is first of all, like this idea of yoga industrial complex, I think that's a very like broad term, you know, mm-hmm. and to me, it's sort of what I've, I've been sussing out in my own work is that came into yoga in my early twenties in the nineties, early nineties. Now I'm in my mid forties and I've got two kids as we were discussing. Mm -hmm. And in that time, yoga evolved in this huge way. As I always say, it went from like this underground thing to this mainstream thing. Mm -hmm. So the yoga industrial complex to me really just refers to the fact that there is like an industry around yoga that there never was when I first started. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that Nike and huge corporations have had yoga related products and ambassadors and all of that. The fact that corporate structures even took over the yoga center model. See, that's that's what happened. That's why. I didn't last more than 10 years Hmm. because in the 10 years, when I started, when I opened my center, I was just following in the model of the people who went before me, whether that was kind of like smaller scale people I knew were like Sharon and David from Jiva Mukti, where I watched them open a center back in the nineties in the East village and watched them grow that to this like global thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't really have any intentions of growing like a global thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just wanted to have an uh, opportunity to teach and I wanted to be able to call the shots because mm-hmm. uh, you as a teacher sometimes are coming up against all these like external <laughs> forces that work against what you want to do as a teacher. So having my own resources meant that I, I could call the shots. Mm-hmm. But I think to the latter part of your question, I think things have just evolved quite a bit. So mm-hmm. when everybody started opening centers, when I was first coming into it, um, nobody really knew where that was going to go. Nobody knew how gentrification was going to kick in mm-hmm. and the neighborhoods that they started and worked these low rents and artists who lived there and could come to class at 2 p.m. every day. We're going to not be able to afford to live in that neighborhood less than 10 years later, because now Starbucks and La Quinta are there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like nobody, nobody knew that in advance. (laughs) Nobody foresaw that. And so I think we all got into it with great intention and, and, and it works for a long time. And I still know, like I just taught a workshop at a place in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Oh, I did my ballet training there as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) So so I just went to a workshop. It was a small studio, max 15 people. 
but she has low rent and she's got a nice little center going for herself and it's working just fine. That's so it's awesome. not like it's not possible. Yeah. But what happened is, as I said, the yoga industrial complex came about where somebody figured out that, oh, you could create, you could get venture capital and create a yoga works or a moto and, and that would be able to compete. And it certainly has. Mm -hmm. And more and more, those scaled models have been able to secure more of the market share. And that's why an independent player like myself couldn't really compete at a certain point in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Moto had a, opened a location, you know, maybe a, a mile or two down the road for me. I never worried about it because they were like a hot studio and I would, that's not what we did. I wasn't really worried about that, but it's a very expensive neighborhood. And because of the way that place is structured and how its finances work, it could not make money at its Williamsburg location and it would be okay. Mm. Like it could be a loss leader so they could just have the premier center, you know? Right, right, right. Uh, but if you're independent, you don't have that luxury. You've got to, you've got to pay that. You got to make enough money to survive. You don't have other locations in a scale model and money backing you. Right, right. Um, and advertising budgets and all of that. Mm -hmm. So all of that to me describes the like yoga industrial complex. And I, I don't like, I don't even say that in a way like, like I'm blaming anybody for that. Mm -hmm. That's like the reality of our country right. more than it is just the reality of yoga world. Right. But to the other part of your question is, I do think that one of the things that a lot of people have discovered, and you hear this a lot from people who've opened centers and then closed them, is that at a some point you realize like even with the best intentions, like the model of opening yoga centers like we have doesn't always support teachers in the way that we'd want it to. Mm -hmm. because ultimately there's one person's name who's on the lease, who's taken on this burden. And when, when it becomes overwhelming and they have to like hang up their <laughs> towel, like you leave the te the teachers, even teachers who've spent years investing their time and energy into building a center, they're kind of left holding the bag in a certain way. Mm -hmm. you know, like they're just, if you haven't built up something independent on your own, if you haven't built up some kind of online presence or some ability to have passive income through video products or some of the other things that I, I did, mm -hmm. I don't think that you, you're just beholden to whoever will let you teach at their center and you can't really make a living off of that. <laughs> when you started sort of establishing, establishing yourself online and through the podcast and everything, did you have any of this in your sites where you're like, whoa, I got to have a backup plan? Or did you just do it as a, as a part of creativity and, and growing as a teacher? I had no plan and just got very lucky because <laughs> I started writing the blog before there was blog, when it was, when it was just newsletters, just mm. constant contact newsletters because WordPress hadn't hit yet. Uh -huh. So I had a monthly newsletter and I was like writing a little thing in the newsletter and then WordPress hit and it became like a more of a, a blog. And then that's just been part of my like yoga practice of, can I write 800 words every month that someone would want to read? That's great. And, and I've been doing that for over 10 years now. Now the, the podcast happened a little bit later on, a couple years, maybe two years before I 
sold the center. I was, st- I was first really starting to question what I was doing like eight years in because things weren't going that great at the center. And I was like, crap, am I going to renew this lease when it goes up? And I, I was trying to sort through that. And also the internet had changed so drastically where my blog used to facilitate lots of comment threads where I'd have all this dialogue with people. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point that sort of stopped happening and everything moved on to Facebook and got trolly and mm-hmm. it just stopped being that dialogue. And I was listening to podcasts as we discussed when you came on my podcast yeah. and it, and it just was like, oh, this is where the real, this is like a real conversation and nuance. And that's what I want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just started doing the podcast as like a passion thing. And I continue to do it as that. Like I just really, as you know, find getting to talk to interesting people who, who you can learn from and sharing it with other people and having people connect to it has been like just a profoundly rewarding thing to do. So it it never was like a plan to have like a press, like a platform. It was just, I want to make this thing. I want to, I want to document stories and history and stuff. But I, I have to say that as it's gone on, I have more and more been like, looking at, okay, so now there's these people who listen to the podcast and how, what is the relationship between that and people who decide to like do an online workshop with me or show up? A lot of people showing up my workshops now are podcast listeners. Mm-hmm. So there's, huh? there's certainly like a connection to it, but I think when you try to make the like podcast or the blogs to sell stuff, you yeah. get into trouble, you know? Yeah, I know. People are smart. They they can they can sort of sniff that out, I think. I love that you said that you created your blog and you just had the discipline to write 800 words once a month because I've been starting to just do little talks in Jason's advanced teacher trainings and trying to offer people, you know, quote unquote, publishing advice. And and it's so, so hard to get published on any major platform anymore. And so I'm just encouraging people. And I think you know, at this point when people are young yoga teachers, they feel this pressure to like become a brand, you know, really right away or something like that. And because it's hard to survive and uh, as a yoga teacher. And so my advice to them is just like, just decide on what you can do in terms of publishing, whether it's, you know, three Instagram posts a week or a blog post a week or once a month or whatever, newsletter once a month, whatever it is, and just have the discipline and just do it because you learn so much from that process of just doing. And if, if no one's reading it in the beginning or no one's listening in the beginning, who cares? It's fine. You're learning. It's, you know, in the beginning, it really, I I feel in the beginning, it really needs to be for you and your development and your, honestly, your self-discipline, because it takes a lot of discipline to publish regularly. I couldn't agree more. (laughs) And I, I really took it on as like a practice because I felt like I was a good talker, but Mm -hmm. I wasn't a good writer. Like being able to write something down is different. And I knew I wasn't good at it. I recognized other people I thought who were. (laughs) And so I just wanted, I did it for a couple of years just as an exercise to, to see if I could get better. And 
at a certain point I did start to feel more confident that, Mm -hmm. oh, I think I can, I have some skills now that I didn't have when I started doing this. Mm -hmm. But I, it's funny you say that because, you know, I've been doing this blog for over 10 years and I, I really have ideas to do like a larger work to write a book. And, Mm -hmm. And I started to try and I came up against like trying to do these inquiries to literary agents and the whole thing just went south. I was like, screw this. Yep. And like, <laughs> I, this too. is terrible. <laughs> I've and done then that ultimately, too. I, I recently like I, somebody reached out to me and I really liked her and she had worked on a book that I really liked. And so I paid her as an editor to help me get together like a book proposal. That's so smart. We, we, we got it mostly together. You know, I, I'm still working. I'm just got to get the first two chapters and I started it. But I also came up against the reality of, like you said, with publishing, like even, even if I get it together at this point, because I do have a bit of a platform on my own, like if I were to put it out by myself, I can estimate like how many I think I would sell just on right. my own. Yeah. And like do the math a little bit if I get to keep all that money. Uh-huh. And there's no way any publishing company is going to give me that much money. Right. Yeah. So in a way, it almost makes sense for me mm -hmm. to just publish it on my own. And then if somebody else wanted to do something more that later, maybe. But to your point about being independent, (laughs) that looking for like somebody else who's going to come in and be like some knight in shining armor or something, that's the mentality that'll kill you. Like it's, Mm. I'm with you to just to like, first of all, you got to back it up. So like you said, you, to have the skill set where you feel like you really can write, that's the first exercise. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes when that comes about it, like yoga, it does sort of build on itself and sort of, I don't know anymore. I mean, we've been doing all this experimenting with Instagram, which I never really was really using. But nowadays, it's the one that's driving things more than other ones. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have such a hard time. Like, I don't know what you're supposed to do with these stories. I don't even (laughs) understand. They go away at some point unless you post. I just and like the 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 new thing of like selfie video, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like those seem to drive a lot more. And I just. I don't know, to me, like, I'm a little bit confused. You know, I did an experiment for the last six weeks. I did not post out the podcast episodes on Facebook. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. I always post out this week's podcast. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. But my producer, he, he's been on me and wanting to see where things are really coming from. And what I discovered is that actually the stats for the podcast are exactly the same, whether I post it on Facebook or not. Yeah, Facebook is just a losing proposition for business owners these days. Yes. It's, and so to me, I'm like, wow, there's like a psychological thing where I feel like, yeah, you're oh promoting. God, how could I not be posting out the podcast on Facebook? What? That's crazy. Right. But the reality of it is when I don't have that emotional worry that I'm not going to be building or whatever, it's the truth is it's not, that's not how people get to the podcast. Well, you, and you've already established an audience too. I mean, you know, probably in the beginning, someone, someone's going to have to post somewhere for people to find them, whether it's like their own email list or, but you've already, you've got a core group of people who know who, who listen to you. So, but yeah, yeah, I'm kind of, things change so rapidly. It's funny. I've always liked Instagram and I almost feel like a, like a weird, unpopular yoga person saying that, but 
just being a magazine person, I love design and I love visuals. And so in the very beginning, Instagram for me was just like, it was like a way for me to document my day or my life or my family and in pictures kind of, and just moments of the day that I found really beautiful or like I was grateful for. And then at the end of the year, I would just, I would make a book of all those pictures. There's apps now where you can just take your Instagram feed for the year and just put it in a little booklet and then print it out. Artifact Uprising is the one I used to use. They print on like beautiful paper. And so for me, it started out as like such a fun, creative exercise. And it's, and it's definitely grown more for me, more of like a communication tool, which I didn't really expect because it started off so visual. And now like people write really, it's almost like a mini blog platform now. That's how I think of it. Well, that's what my producer is trying to get me to think of it as more (laughs) because that's when the people are being more effective at it. What I would say is one thing I've been really thinking about too, is that sometimes it's sort of misleading, like the way Instagram followers aren't the same thing as like an email list. Right. Mm -hmm. So you could have like an email list of like maybe 4,000 people. And so there's maybe 1,500 or 2,000 of those people who really dig what you do Mm -hmm. and have Mm -hmm. like put money out, you know, have like bought your stuff and would buy your next thing too or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But like on Instagram, you could have like 30,000 followers. Yes. And like maybe 200 of them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like, I don't know, like in terms of the other question you asked about owning your own stuff and being independent, that I really do feel strongly about because I've just witnessed too many yoga teachers and some who came before me and many who are coming after me where they basically give away their store, like too much full length, free content, just being put out there as though it's going to get you some new reach. Mm hmm. And some of the video portals, I think it's died down some, but like, it's a similar concept, like just because there's like a couple of big name teachers on a platform and like, they've got lots of subscribers doesn't mean that you're going to make it, like, any money off of it. Like, mm-hmm. like the way the algorithms work, the way that you get a percentage, like per, yeah. per view, it's the same thing that happened with musicians and like Spotify. Like the content providers just don't. So the reality is, is sometimes these platforms, they built it off of the teachers. Teachers already had their own little networks. Mm. And so I watch what some of these other teachers do. And I, I just wonder, you know, if you educate yourself, you can do it all with like a Squarespace account and a Vimeo account. Well, let's talk about this. I was not going to go in like the business of yoga direction with you because <laughs> to be quite honest, Jay, I've like dug around for. I read lots of your blog posts, which are so good. Like really you are, it's so funny that you say you're more comfortable speaking than writing. So you started writing because I think your writing is really fantastic. And I'm the opposite person. I was always more comfortable writing than speaking, which is why I started the podcast. (laughs) And like now I'm finally fairly, you know, I'm confident speaking, but it definitely is not my number one choice. But anyway, you've got your blog, but I couldn't find a whole lot about like your yoga origin story. And I mean, I know you started doing yoga in the nineties. I know that you consider the Desikachar lineage to be your lineage, but I don't, I don't know more about you and like how yoga helped you. Well, it's interesting. There's some stuff on online, but I, but I hear what you mean because I think that is part of like my teaching too, you know, like I'm from this generation that didn't 
go to India and get a guru. Mm-hmm. And so like Sean Korn also is a good example where if you, if you didn't have like a guru, sort of your credibility came from a certain transparency mm-hmm. around your story as to why you do it. Mm-hmm. So I tell the story of like how I got into yoga as part of like teaching people the yoga that I'm doing because I think they're totally related. And, you know, that story starts for me when my mom died. She died when I was 16. Uh, She had leukemia and she was terminally ill for some time before she died. I was 16 at the Mm. time and not at all emotionally capable of dealing with the situation. So you know, I was starring in the school play mm. while she was at the hospital. And for the six months leading up to her death, I did not visit her even once. Mm. And I do, I have one memory of like being in the parking lot in my car for like a half hour. I like tried, but I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I just left. And I didn't ultimately see her in the hospital until I got rushed there in the middle of the night because they weren't sure whether she was going to make it. Wow. And then I did have this deathbed experience with her. Oh, she was in this very chaotic state and she was saying things like, I'm not ready to go. And my sister was breaking down and they were sobbing and crying together. And I don't know, I had this moment standing there at the foot of her bed that I cannot fully explain something. I, I was a very hyper kid, you know, I never, I never remembered being calm as a kid. I think I might have been diagnosed ADHD if I had been born later. Uh-huh. But in this moment, standing there at her bed, like a, a very strange calm came over me. And I told her that I went to her and she stopped being crazy. And I said to her that I was going to do great things in my life and make her proud of me. And she heard me and I told her that I wasn't going to come to the hospital again. And then I loved her and I gave her a kiss and I turned and walked out of that room. And that, that was the last time I saw her or talked to her. And after that, she passed away maybe two weeks later. It was about a year and a half before I was going to graduate high school. And I got through high school. Okay. Kind of in a whirl. I got accepted to NYU. I went to NYU and things kind of went bad for me pretty quick. Hmm. Like all the grief and unresolved pain came up. You know, I I don't know if you know anything about acting training, but I was studying acting and Mm -hmm. acting training is really good at uh, breaking you down and making you available emotionally, Hmm. which is what I kind of needed, you know? Uh, So I remember my, my freshman year of college, I did a performance piece as a final project where I stood on stage naked and projected home movies of my mom holding me as an infant on my chest. Like I went like all the way there. Wow. You know? I was like, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to like rip it open and feel it, you know? Yeah. And the thing about acting training was that it didn't, it didn't do anything to build me up though. You know, it kind of left me as like an emotional wreck on the floor. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the time I was sort of halfway through school, I just was going to a really dark, not good place. And, you know, I think at some point it got so bad, I felt like I either have to kill myself or I have to find another way to live. Mm. And in the moment when I was contemplating 
ending my life, all I could think about was this promise I made to my mom. Oh, thank God you made the promise. <laughs> really? Seriously. I mean, it, it really was. I mean, it was like, it, it took that option off the table mm-hmm. and I had to figure something out. And one of the only things I could think to do was go to yoga classes. Cause when I was in school, I had taken some yoga classes. And even when I was at my worst, I could, I had to acknowledge to myself that I would feel a little better after a yoga practice. Oh, wow. So you had already found yoga in college. A little bit because it was part of the acting program. Oh, okay. It's like part of a movement component. And I didn't like a lot of the other movement components, but there was this one yoga class. And again, like I never felt great at that time. (laughs) I never felt good, but I I would feel better and I could acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. And when I was at this point, there's actually one particular friend of mine who asked me, well, what do you do that brings you any joy? Can you identify anything in your life that brings you joy? Mm. And I could only think of two things. One was playing my electric bass guitar and the other was going to yoga practices. And this friend said, well, I think you should do those two things every day. What a good friend. That's so, so, I, such a wise advice. For that I just thought it was such a good idea. I was like, yeah. that's a great idea. I'm going to do that. And I just started going. I started at Jivamukti on 2nd Avenue. And it was like 92 or 93, maybe. And I got really, you know, very passionate about practice very quickly. I felt out of control. And suddenly practicing yoga felt like I was getting in control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jivamukti was a real mix of stuff. At that time, there wasn't a Jivamukti method yet. Hmm. I remember when... I first got there, it was just this really eclectic mix of teachers from different traditions and schools. And at some point, I remember they started offering a teacher training. The first one was free. One of my teachers was part of it. And then the next one, when they started charging, is when it became a thing. And then only teachers who did the training could teach there. Mm -hmm. And it kind of made a transition. And then I kind of branched off and studied with a teacher named Allison West for a long time. And I studied Shivananda work with her and a Yangar method with her and some Ashtanga with her. At some point, I was really into the Ashtanga. I was working on third series poses wow. kind of recklessly. <laughs> and I like blew out a knee really bad. Mm-hmm. And it was a big epiphany for me where I, mean, I was already making a living teaching at that point, And I just thought, you know, I need this need to work in order for me to do this job. Like, mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly, when I asked teachers at that time what I should do or why this happened, why did I get hurt? The common answer was that I needed to have better alignment, mm. that having better alignment meant not having injuries. And so I did spend some time focusing more on a Yungar method and learning some of those principles and, and learn that practice to some degree and had some level four alignment that I could demonstrate, but ultimately still had like a lot of pain and was still somewhat disillusioned about my mom. I mean, I got better. I was, I was more in control. I had discipline. Mm-hmm. Like I could get myself to do something if I felt I needed to do it, which was important, but I still was in a lot of pain. And I could do stuff. I could do like handstand presses and people would applaud in class and the teacher would say, this is what you're working towards. Hmm. And I would feel good about it in the moment because I was the only one in the room who could do it. But when I was walking home from class by myself, I would feel miserable hmm. because 
I was still deeply disillusioned and unhappy. And I had like a lot of physical pain, even though I could execute these, these forms and was being somewhat celebrated for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at some point I really became disillusioned. I almost thought about leaving yoga altogether. And how old um, were you? About how, were you in your mid twenties at this point? Had you? Yes, I was. I started in my mid twenties, around twenty one or twenty two. Mm-hmm. Um, and within a few years, within a year or two, two years, I was teaching. Did you graduate from NYU? Did you finish? I did graduate. Okay. I did manage to get through, <laughs> barely, and I did manage to pay off that student loan too. Yeah. But you know, by the time, I don't know, I was into my new 25, 26, maybe 27, I was really already feeling this like burnout almost on the yoga. As I said, I could do all this stuff, but at a certain point I just started, I don't think this yoga thing works, you know? Hmm. And I had another friend, my other best friend on the planet who still to this day is so he, I had him doing practices with him and he basically said, I don't, I don't think you should quit. Like he knew me before I was into yoga and he'd seen me do other things. And he's like, I think you're good at this. <laughs> I don't think you should quit this. Hmm. And he suggested that we take a trip to India together. So I didn't know what else to do. So we saved up some money and I went to India in 1998 for three months. And my idea was not to go to an ashram or study. I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to travel around and kind of figure out whether I wanted to keep being a yoga teacher or do something else. Mm-hmm. And my other plan was I wanted to stay away from tourist areas. So <laughs> it was just a backpack and a let's go guide. And we're not going to the Taj Mahal. And, you know, everywhere I went, I looked for teachers. And I would, my idea there was I wanted to find the local teacher, like who teaches the local people, not the tourists. And I didn't find many of them. And a lot of the teachers I did find, frankly, were a little bit of frauds, like capitalizing off tourist trains. Yep. But I did meet this one Swami in Rishikesh who I spent like 11 days with. And he was very much, in my mind, the real deal. Like he, he literally lived up in a cave most of the year and came down during the raining season to teach. And he turned things around for me, you know. Like, was it one-on-one teaching? It was. Oh, wow. In fact, it's That's funny nice. you say that because I always start workshops these days asking people if they've ever had any one-to-one instruction. Hmm. And almost never does anybody raise their hand, maybe one or two out of 40. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you raise that point because I didn't know any, I had never had any one-to-one instruction. I was used to group dropping classes, which is what most of us know. But that is an entirely modern phenomenon. Mm. And there wasn't any group drop-in classes with the Swami. You, you basically, you had an interview with him. And I was very fortunate because I got to see someone have their interview right before mine. So like I actually had a little time to prepare. And so the woman in front of me went up to the Swami and he said, what do you want to learn? And she said, oh, well, I have really bad posture and I hear yoga is good for that. Mm -hmm. And he said, yes, yoga is really good for posture. Come to see me three days a week. You'll pay me this much. Mm -hmm. So then it's my turn. And I just, I was so disenchanted with yoga at that point. I have so full of information about alignment and like could go chant the Gayatri mantra. But like, I just, I just didn't want to know that stuff. And so when he said to me, what do you want to learn? I said, anything I don't already know. 
Mm. And he smiled and he said, good, you come every day. (laughs) And then he, he really, basically, I remember the very first lesson. He said, do you know Don Yurasana Bopos? And I said, yes. And he said, show me please. And then I did like my biggest fancy feet on my head variation. And he said, ah, yes, children also do very well. Like he was completely unimpressed by (laughs) my display of prowess that in New York, everyone called advanced. Uh He just thought of that as like a child. Mm -hmm. And instead he would have me do these incredibly simple things, like even simpler than the practice I do now, which is really simple, like wrist rolling your wrist around, you know? And then he would have me do this simple thing. And then he would have me sit for a minute, just like a minute, like not a long time. And then he would say, okay, open your eyes. Tell me, how do you feel? And for a long time, I was talking and talking and describing, oh, my anatomy and like doing all these yoga teacher things to try to sound smart. Mm -hmm. And he would just get really annoyed. And it went on for some time where he would do a simple thing. He would have me sit. He would say, how do you feel? And then I would talk and then he would get annoyed. (laughs) And then at some point I started to feel like, I don't know, I'm not learning anything. And I think this guy's a fraud. And I kind of came in one morning with this like black cloud over me thinking that I wasn't learning anything. And he did the same thing again. He had me do a simple thing. He had me sit. He asked me, how do you feel? And then I kind of snapped and I said, I don't know how I feel. And he smiled really big and he said, good. And it like hit me like a bucket of water on my head or something that he kept asking me this question. How do you feel? How do you feel? And I kept talking, but never answering the question because I had no idea. And nobody had asked me that. Like I had stayed with very renowned teachers, honestly. And that was just never part of the conversation. And did he, and did he know anything about your background or anything? He just knew to no. ask that question. Yeah. He knew that I, I was a trained American yoga guy. Mm-hmm. He could tell that. And I think that he just was super intuitive. Mm-hmm. And I think that he didn't even speak great English, but he could tell that I was kind of talking out of my butt, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> he, could, he could tell that I was young and passionate about yoga. But ultimately what I really think he did is he, he gave me a new idea about yoga. After that moment, when he, I think he saw that I got it, he didn't ask me that question again like that. Mm-hmm. And the lessons really changed. And he would say, what do you want to do today? And I would say, I don't know. My neck feels a little wacky because I slept weird. He'd say, oh, when my neck doesn't feel good, I do this. You try. And I would do it. And he'd say, does that feel any better? And I was like, yes, that feels good. Thank you. And he would say, okay, let's go get some pizza now. (laughs) And yes, if you've ever been to India, there's no pizza in India anywhere. But the Swami like knew where there was pizza in Rishikesh. And I think what was happening is he knew I was from New York and he knew that in New York we ate pizza. Wow. So he was taking me to get pizza. And I believe he was trying to communicate something to me about yoga. Like I had had this idea that it was like this eight limbed path and I was going to climb the rungs of this ladder and do my asana and my pranayama and my meditation so I could get to samadhi so that I wouldn't have all this pain in me over my mom basically. Mm-hmm. that I would feel okay. Mm-hmm. And he would so he was sort of saying, "Oh no, 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 you need to do a little something, you do a little something." Mm-hmm. And I didn't know at the time, but he was basically just offering me like a tantric 
concept, you know, where it wasn't about trying to like transcend to some place, but like integrating more into your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I did come back to New York and I was still teaching power vinyasa classes, but I, I started practicing totally different by myself at home. And I feel like I just, I feel like I had permission to break rules. Like there's all these rules that you learn in the yoga schools, but because I had gone to India and I'd met a Swami who lived up in a cave and he told me that I could decide what it should be based on how I feel. I felt licensed to just make choices for myself at home. That's awesome. Yeah. And ultimately, ultimately I would say that's what I teach now is what I ended up discovering in that process of like, what is all this practice I'm doing? Why am I doing it? And just sort of trying to get to the bottom of that is ultimately what also led me to some teachings from TKB Desikachar, as you mentioned, which is a very big influence. I met a guy named Mark Whitwell who had edited a TKB Desikachar book, The Heart of Yoga. Mm-hmm. And yes. he spoke English. Mm-hmm. So when I met him, he was able to fill me in on a lot of stuff that I didn't get from the Swami and kind of gave me some new language to use. But yeah, that's how I kind of sort of had a turnaround. And, and that was before William J. Broad wrote his article about safety or any of that. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of like pushing against this big power vinyasa wave. But um, things have certainly changed a lot since then. Yeah. <laughs> One question, one observation, the, the let's go get pizza now. I mean, I wonder if he was also, to me, it just sounds like, I don't know, it's such a sweet thing to do. Like maybe showing you that, that, that connection between people, even though like you're from different places. And if you're an Indian Swami, you wouldn't guess that he would eat pizza, but you know, I don't know. When I taught yoga, one of the things that just struck me in my heart was like, I would look at my students and I would just feel viscerally our connection to each other in this way that I'd never really felt before. I would just watch everyone and the tall person and the short person and the skinny person and the athletic person and the, the banker and the stay at home mom. And like, I could just feel the thing, the thread that connects us all. And I feel like that, that going, taking you to get pizza is like such a demonstration of that. It's so sweet. I agree. And I think he, you know, he was communicating through gesture Mm. and through like the person that he was. It's funny. I mean, the pizza was terrible, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, I think that, you know, also for me, there was really this lesson in it where he was communicating that yoga practice, like as he was instructing, was more on a need to do basis. Mm. That it wasn't this like linear progression to get to some grand place. It was more like if you feel well and everything's going okay, then you actually don't need to practice. You just live your life. (laughs) But if you're not doing well or something isn't right. Or even if you just want to, because it's a pleasure, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then you would practice. Mm. And it just, it made practice more like a personal hygiene or something (laughs) rather than like some special grand transcendent vehicle to another land or something. I don't know how to say it, but well, yeah, it's a constant, it's a constant in your life. It's a tool. It's there for you. If, yeah, if you know how to use, once you know how to use it, I actually, that is exactly how my practice has been for the past six years. I use it when I need it. I know, but you know what's funny about that? It goes back to us talking about the yoga industrial complex because 
that actually is absolutely right for yoga, but it's not a great business model. <laughs> you know, like in a way, the yoga practice I offer now basically says that once you learn it, you don't need me anymore. Mm. And that's not the best way to keep people coming back. <laughs> I mean, I do think there's a model for, you know, making a living teaching yoga practice that's self-empowering and you don't need to come back. But it's an interesting thing that I've been sorting out. You know, I, I got it together in my yoga practice and started teaching that way right as the industry really changed, you know, mm-hmm. right as it became more of a fitness thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what we're talking about is a really a contemplative thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess one response to that, I know what you're saying, but at the same time, like I still need meditation teachers, you know, like I I still need certain kinds of teaching. I mean, the body changes and things change. And so I guess what you're saying is if, if you want like a hundred person packed vinyasa class, it's not every week, it's not a good business model, but. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the thing. I, I with you, I think we need teachers and we need good teachers. Right. And, and I think you need outside references to grow. <laughs> and yeah. this can be a lot of different things. I think your point is the right one is, does it need to be a hundred people or is 40 people enough? Mm-hmm. And even, you know, you can understand this. You, Jason, he's out there doing the travel gigs. Mm. Yeah. And I was having this conversation with my producer about this. He's like, you know, he gets that, you know, if I go to a place I can make a good little chunk on a, on a gig. And that's why teachers go out and have like a circuit that they travel on, mm-hmm. but it isn't a very sustainable thing, you know, right. in a sense, it's a one-off shot. It's not like a sustainable subscription model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is riding the yoga industrial complex thing in a way that, that people will pay way more mm-hmm. for a 300 hour training than they will to like go on a regular basis and spend time with the teacher over two or three years. Right. But that's in part because like a weekly, a group yoga class, you're just not going to learn like to the depth that you want to learn. Do you know what I mean? I can acknowledge what you're saying, but at the same time, like when I did my 200 hour teacher training, I had no idea. I'd never heard of the koshas. I'd never heard of the gunas. I'd never heard of any of these things, you know, like that, that still help inform me and my practice to this day. I get that. I think trainings have become the place where if you want to go deeper into learning and studying, that's where you go. Cause you can't get it always in it. No, you can't get it in a 60 minute class these days. You, you can't really get do it. Need. Yeah. In an organized way. I guess the point I, I'm trying to get to, which I maybe didn't get so eloquently, is that there has been this shift, and it goes back to when we were talking about me having this new studio, where there's a point in which it starts becoming about getting people in the door or selling subscription or memberships more than people wanting to learn from a teacher. Mm, and yeah. that's when I think things have gone a little south. <laughs> you know, it's like, and where that line is, you know, I don't know. I don't know exactly where it is. And I don't know if there's like a set number of people or whether it's, it's having to grow and having to get more people in the door and what we're doing to make that happen. Yeah. And when that overshadows like the inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. I am dogged and I want to go back to my, my question back with the Swami. <laughs> okay, please do. Yeah. Which is that. I might've gotten off track. It's Okay. Did you feel when you 
worked with him and when you left India, did, was there some healing around the loss of your mom? Absolutely. I think it, that started a process like it got me off of a, a track I was on where I was, I was trying to escape it or get, get beyond it. And if you think there's something wrong with you or that you're like broken in some way and you have to fix it, like torturing your body makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and then you can find approaches that will fuel that for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that at, that broke like the pattern I was in of treating myself as though I was broken. And it, it led me to like a more non-dual idea where I wasn't broken at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, I am the wonder of existence and that I, I started out as a conglomeration of cells and now I'm a complex thinking, feeling thing with growing hair. And it is this complete wonder and I, I can't fully comprehend it, but I don't need to be liberated from it. Mm. And I don't need to be realized into it. And I don't need to be enlightened out of it. That this is the spiritual plane. As we talked about when you came on my podcast, like my family life will be my yoga cave, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that idea really is what I stopped trying to like reach somewhere or become something so that I then wouldn't have this pain or be where I was. Yeah. And ultimately, frankly, when I stopped trying to make it about doing poses, it just became about breathing. And it became about what happened with my breathing and my mind in the practice when I wasn't trying to push my body hard. When I was like setting a boundary and just working with it and letting it be easier, what was happening there. And ultimately, through my friend Mark Wibble, who did help me a lot in this regard, it, it was about cultivating a, a nurturing sentiment to it, hmm. where my practice became like an intimate participation, like a, like a loving of myself. Mm-hmm. I said that, and then a voice in my head said, that's so cheesy, I can't believe you said that on Andrea's podcast. <laughs> but I do believe it, like it was about like a self a nurturing sentiment and, mm-hmm. and having that. Cause I discovered that I could do the same poses in the same order, like every day. And one day it would heal me. And one day it would hurt me. Mm. Even though I did the poses in a technically proficient way, both days. So there was something subtler that was going on and discovering what that subtle quality is, which is, I think you could call it stirasuka if you wanted to. Mm-hmm that quality of like balanced effort and nurturing sentiment that became like a precedence for me. Mm. And ultimately to your question, it did, I believe, heal that initial wound where I don't see my mom's passing as a terrible wrong that was done to me. In fact, I really think of it as a blessing that was bestowed that having to go through that and led me to the very good things that are happening in my life now and a sense of fulfillment that I don't know that a lot of people get in their lives because they don't always have the kind of privilege and opportunities that I had to explore themselves and learn techniques and do stuff to help themselves, you know? So I feel, you know, that, that Swami, I tell that story because it, it was like a, the turning point for me and where it led was like a, a place where I feel very much myself as a whole, a whole being who is not at all broken or 
there's nothing wrong with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah, like yeah. My pain, my confusion and the difficulties that I experience. that's, that's not an indication that I'm lacking. That's just par for the course of being a human. Yeah. Yeah. And that perspective is like invaluable. That like non-dual perspective where I feel myself in life is what allows me to like still have joy, even when there's difficulties and feel like I'm okay. And it's all worthwhile. Yeah. That's so phenomenal to hear. I mean, like that you would look at that experience of your mother dying in that way and have, and like you said, it's just once the, your perspective shifts, it's like a light bulb that goes on and a switch that goes on. And it's, it's, even if it dims sometimes, like it's not going to shut off. It's there. You can access it from that point on. It's pretty amazing. Absolutely. And what I would say to that, it's a discussion that's been on my podcast a lot, is that when that thing that you just described is from within you, like that's not connected to an external authority at all, but that you've come to that through your own personal inquiry and observing your own experience, then it is wholly your own and it can never be taken away from you, from anybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that is like the power of it. Like that's why so many people are into yoga. I yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, yeah. I agree. I want to read something that you wrote um, on one of your blog posts because I think it's just so actually is more of what we're saying. It's a really lovely passage. So you say yoga is a potential means to untangle us from the systems and structures that make us afraid of the unknown, not just another way of reinforcing the patterns that keep us stuck in seemingly unchangeable circumstances. And then when yoga causes us to marvel at life's wonder and be awestruck by its miracle, that's when it becomes important. Yeah. Right? Nicely done. Nicely done, Jay. Thanks. As an editor, I just Thanks. would have told you I love that passage. Oh, I'm glad. Thank you. I do think that's it. And it, it even goes back to where we started. Like, that's how I'm able to, like, face the daunting realities of, like, the business of trying to make a living teaching yoga mm-hmm. is that there is an underlying basis of, like, practice and in that practice, I have an experience of that, of life as a wonder. And in that place where I'm like not, I'm not making that effort of like my identity and survival or social media, like that's like mm-hmm. not, I'm not doing that when I'm able to like let go of that effort. What is there is this sense of awe. And in that is where I feel healing and I feel this like useful perspective and I identify that as like what my purpose is in practice. It's a nuanced thing. It's hard to explain how doing really simple breathing and moving exercises might lead to that, (laughs) but they do for me. Yeah. 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 I'm just was thinking as you were, sorry, I was just lost in a moment. I was thinking a few things. So I will go with this track. So you've got your studio space, you've got your do you record your podcast in the studio now? Mm-hmm, I do. Yeah. So you have a nice spot to record your podcast and you have a nice spot to record your streaming class, weekly class. Yes. Just for, I have so many teachers listening as I know you do too. Would you recommend that people who are, have been teaching for, you know, several years that they start kind of to create their own media online? And, and where would you recommend that they start? I mean, I guess the, the simple answer is yes, I think it's a good idea. Where they start, I'm not sure. I know that 
if you have people who are interested in what you do and they don't live where you are, um, certainly having a way to offer some of what you do to them is a good idea. And I've been doing a live stream subscription where I was live streaming all of my public classes to subscribers, not to like a Facebook live thing. Let's be really clear about that. This is not like free content that goes out to everybody. It's a closed circuit. You mm-hmm. subscribe to it. And I started doing that at, at uh, my center and other people's centers. And I never had any control over the lighting <laughs> or the internet connection. So it could get pretty dodgy. Mm-hmm. So having my own studio has allowed me to have kind of like complete control over all those elements. Mm-hmm. But to your question, I do think that it behooves us to be in the internet sphere. Like my most recent project that I started just last week is this teacher's class, which is like a video call with just teachers mostly who don't have like mentors or people to talk to where they are. Mm -hmm. And they listen to the podcast and they're interested to discuss some things with me. And I was in my studio last Thursday night for an hour and a half, like 20 other people from around the world. Mm -hmm. And it absolutely felt not at all different than if they were all in the room with me and we were having that conversation. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. And it really, to me, was like a a moment where I was like, okay, like I've been resistant to the technologies, but the reality is, is that it is absolutely a way to connect to people in virtual spheres that can be ways of connecting to us, connecting us Mm -hmm. in positive ways. So yes, again, I have to say that I don't know that it's a great idea to try to start having like a live stream until you're really confident as a teacher. Yep. I don't think you start there. I think you have to have a thing that you're teaching first and feel confident about that. Cause that's what like gives you the chutzpah to like <laughs> put something out, you know, yeah. or you got to be able to back it up ultimately. So. Yeah. This takes me back to earlier in our conversation, we were talking about the discipline to write regularly. I think you and I both, you know, have put in time making the donuts or making the sausages as it were, you know, just like there, there is a certain amount of building up your skill set until you have a mastery over those skills. And a lot of it is putting in the time on a regular basis to grow. It's just like, what's the Malcolm Gladwell? I don't know. He, he has a certain number of hours until mastery. I don't remember. I don't remember the number of hours and I don't know if it's a set number of hours. Right. I do hear what you're saying. And I think that to me, even with the podcasting that we're doing, like sometimes I get like comments from people or emails from people and they make comments from a position of not knowing how hard it is. <laughs> and, and I always think that I don't think I would be able to do what I'm doing with the podcast had I tried to do it earlier in my life. Mm, mm-hmm. Because in order to kind of just be comfortable enough in myself to hold down a conversation with people that you're intimidated by, it's almost like that's like the testament of the practice is like the person it produces. So your ability to like be comfortable in yourself and converse and have dialogue and speak accurately about what you do and what you're learning, that is the result of like effective yoga practice. I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jay. I feel like 
It was so nice to, to get to know you even better. And I love hearing about your background. I had no idea that you went on like an intensely physical path for a while. So that's just, it just puts, it gives me a lot of context for, for who you are. Well, absolutely. I have my little slogan, gentle is the new advanced. And I, it is in reaction to other ideas of advanced that I had before. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there has been a, a progression there. And just great to get to talk to you again, too. I, I got such great feedback from when you came on mine. And oh, I just, I'm, I'm glad that we're friends and that we get to be in each other's fears. Me too. Me too. Before this conversation, I was so happy because sometimes before the conversations, I get like a little nervous. I get very busy trying to like kind of hone in on how I want to focus the conversation and, you know, for the audience and how I want to connect with the person. And before this conversation, I was like, oh, I'm just actually really looking forward to talking to him because you're really easy to talk to. And I do feel such a sense of like such a collegial bond with you in that we both do the same thing. And we've both been like very open with each other about it. And I completely appreciate the friendship and the connection. The feeling <laughs> is entirely mutual. I love that that um, you felt comfortable to not plan out a lot yeah, for this conversation. Me that, too. That we're friends enough we could just chat like this. I think it was great. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much. You're very welcome, Andrew. Let's be in touch. Okay, sounds good. Cheers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Obviously, if I quoted Jay's blog, I think his blog is really worth checking out. And I will link to it on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 118. Thanks as always for writing iTunes reviews and rating the show and sharing it on Instagram. And uh, yeah, I just really appreciate it. And until next week, enjoy your practice. <laughs>